0: If you want to find your way to Philippians chapter one, we'll be there in just a just a couple of minutes. Just want to remind you that during this last month or so through January and through the first part of February, we've been looking at what it means to to be the church. You know, we are the church, what churches is, is all about. And we looked at being a gathered together people gathered by God. Literally, you know, if you look at the church around the world from every corner of the earth, we're a unified people, unified, brought together because of his spirit in us. We're devoted people because we're devoted to the teachings of Christ and the things of Christ. We looked last week at at being a generous people, how the gospel drives us to be generous with everything that we have and everything that we are. And we come to a close of this series this morning and we look at the truth that we are a a focused people. So let me just ask you a question as we as we start, what is the what is it that that guides your life? In your home, in your workplace, in your school that you attend, in your church, what what guides your life? Or let me maybe phrase it another way, what should be our our goal in, in life. If you were here on New Year's Eve, that cold day, I, I told you when we spoke about the goal, personally for me, for, for 2018, is to, is to know Christ. That, that I wanted the all-consuming purpose of my life to, to somehow become the pursuit of Jesus and everything that He has for me. And that the end result of that is well worth the journey and that it's a goal in pursuing Christ that guarantees that we'll be satisfied. And we looked at the, the verse where Paul wrote in Philippians chapter three, verse 10 about his goal. And he said, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. And we talked about the personal goal of all who live for Christ is that we would know Him and continue to know Him more and more and more. And so this morning we come to the close of this and we come to to just one thing. As Paul is, is writing this letter from jail to the Philippians, he wants to impress on their minds and in their hearts what they should be about. And after his introduction and after his wonderful testimony of saying for me to live... ...is Christ, and to die is gain, we find in verse 27, him turning to write specifically to the Philippians, and he says, "...only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you were standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel." and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that we are here today to gather in your name, to worship your holy name, and to study your precious word. And God, we ask you that you would give us, by your grace and by your mercy, ears to hear, eyes to see. Help us to be ready and attentive in our spirits and in our minds for the word that you have for us. We say, teach us, O Lord, because we need to hear from you. And we ask that in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So the main idea, where we're headed this morning, our goal is to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Our goal in life is to live our life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now when you think about that phrase, a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, it should should bear a lot of weight on your shoulders. You think, what does that look like and how the world could I ever begin to, to come under ...that and look even just a little bit like that. Paul says, only let the manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. As I said earlier, one of the translations says there's, there's just one thing. I don't want you to miss the point. It's like, you know, lifting a finger and warning or pointing a finger. You, this is the main point. Let the manner of your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What in the world does that mean? It sounds like a huge responsibility... Live your life in a way that people know you belong to Jesus and that people see that the Jesus in you make a difference. You see, he's writing to the, the people in, in Philippi, which was a Roman colony in northeastern Greece. They were Roman citizens and they were very proud of the fact that they were Roman citizens. Now, we know a lot about that because we are from Texas, And because we are from Texas, we are proud to be Texans. Travel anywhere in the world and we stand out because we are Texans. I'm not saying we stand out in a good way. Sometimes it's an obnoxious way. My friend, um, my brother had a a friend that that moved in and he lived up in in the northwest. I can't remember if it was Montana or one of those states. It really doesn't matter. But when he moved to Texas, he was driving around and, and he said, he told my brother, he said, you know, there's two things that um that I've come to know, first of all, you people are really proud of your flag because it's everywhere you look. And the second thing is, I can't believe that there are colleges in almost every town. And my brother was like, Well what do you mean college in every town? He goes, Every time I drive into towns, the first thing I see are these huge, giant football stadiums. There's a college in just about every town. And my brother was like, No, those aren't colleges, those are high school football stadiums. And so we're proud of things like that in Texas. And Roman citizens were no different; they were proud of being Roman, and they loved to display their Romanness everywhere they went, just like Texans want to display the fact that they're Texans everywhere that we go. And Paul is making a connection in their lives and in our lives today that Christians should live to display Christ, to display Christ's likeness in their lives. It should make that much of a difference in my life that Jesus is my life, that I want to live in a way that people without a doubt will know that I belong to Jesus. And within that, he says, exercise your rights, enjoy, exercise your, responsi- exercise your rights and your responsibilities. You know, there's things that we have that are beneficial. You know, we have salvation, we have the promise of abundant life, but there's also some responsibilities. We're supposed to go and make disciples. We're supposed to live a godly life. We're supposed to walk worthy. We're supposed to train up children. There's all these responsibilities. But with one thing in mind, that what we do needs to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, that word worthy is an interesting word. If you think about and they don't have them much anymore, but you think about those scales, you know, would have one on each side and and you would balance them out. You know, if you wanted to find out what a pound was, you would put the pound weight on the left and then you would measure out a pound on the on the right side. And then once they equaled out, you would know that you had a pound of something because you measured it against a standard. And so this word really means what's on one side should equal what's on the other side, that both sides should be matching. They should be congruent. What does that mean for you and me? It means that the way we live, our actions, our life is on one side of the scale and the worth of the gospel is on the other side. And our lives should be lived in a way that we are striving toward balancing that out where our life that we live is a measure of the power of God's transformation in our life. One person said it this way, act in a way that fits the great value and glorious nature of God and the gospel and your calling. Wow, sounds like a pretty heavy responsibility, doesn't it? Because we have to remember what makes the gospel so valuable. What makes it such, you know, something that is, you know, this weight of glory that we can't compare to. It's the fact that Jesus died so that we could live. Another person said it this way. He died so that we could live out the power of the gospel in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so with the weight, with the value, the worth of the gospel in mind, we should live a life that matches up to that, which is going to look different than the way the world lives. The things that we do, the things we don't do, the things we watch, the things we don't watch, how we act, what we talk about, our conversation, our relationships are going to look different. He wants us to live like citizens of heaven while we're in a temporary home on earth. To follow heaven's directives in our earthly life. We're all along the conduct, the way that we live our lives, points toward Jesus. It points to him alone. Well, you might say, why why does that matter? You know, people can read the Bible for themselves or God speaks to people individually. Let me remind you of a song. You probably haven't heard it in a while. But have you, do you remember singing the song maybe a few years ago in church? Your life's the book before their eyes. They're reading it through and through. Say, does it point them to the skies? Do others see Jesus in you? See, the reality is that people are watching you and they're watching me. See, people watching is just not a hobby for people. It's a way of life. They watch people that profess something because they want to see, does it, is it real? Does it make a difference? And they're looking at Christians and they're, and they're wondering, you know, is Jesus really transformed their lives? Does people see Jesus in my life or, or do they see more of the world? You know, do they see that we're different, that we're set apart or we're holy? Because the truth is, when you say you're a Christian, people are looking at your life and they're wanting to know, does your life match up to the Bible you carry and the things that you say you profess? And if they look and they see that they don't weigh up, they don't match up, then you know what they say? Hypocrite. That's not for me. Or this stuff is not real. And so there's a lot of responsibility in the way that we live our life because our way is a Testimony. Now, some of you may know, I spend a lot of time um, at Starbucks. I go there in the morning, and my leather bag smells unashamedly like coffee because of that. And, and it's, it's a great reminder in the morning that I have something to look forward to. But you know what? I sit there, and I have my Bible open. I'm taking notes, and I'm studying. I talk to people. And that open Bible that I have, you know, is, is just a clue to, to who I am. And I, I can't tell you how many, you know, people walk up, and they're like, well, what are you studying? And that's a, good, that's a really good clue that they... They probably have at least heard of the Bible or that they're a Christian. Or the other question, which, you know, you can't, they'll say, so are you a pastor or something or, and, and so it's a good way to start conversations. But just because I have an open Bible really doesn't say anything about my life. And in fact, it's kind of like having one of those Jesus bumper stickers on your, on your card. It just calls you out. It says, well, maybe there's something different, but what matters, what the truth is of the situation is how I, I conduct myself and and how I, I speak. Because just having an open Bible really doesn't mean anything. But the conversation that I have, the things that I do and how I act over time will tell whether or not my faith is real. So a good question for me to ask myself is, you know, does my conduct, how I live my life, point to Jesus and demonstrate the value of the gospel? And if it doesn't, you know, why not? And so living a life worthy of the gospel. So Paul makes this statement Live a life worthy of the gospel. And then he follows it up with some encouraging words to show them how to do it. He says, you've got to stick to it. You've got to work together. Keep your focus. Don't be afraid. Embrace the privilege of suffering. So first of all, let's look at this. Stick to it. Now, it doesn't say stick to it in your version. It probably doesn't say it in mine either. But we understand that the Christian life is about endurance. It's about sticking to it. It's about not quitting. It's about refusing to give up. We know the Christian life is filled with joy and it's filled with excitement, but we know it's not immunity from difficulty. Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. And one wise person said this, life, it's life would be easy if it wasn't for life itself. Because you know what? The realities of life are we get tired, (laughs) we get beat up a little bit, we get frustrated. And if we're not careful We begin to let our guard down a little bit. We begin to to back up a little bit from what we believe. We begin to compromise. And then we begin to give up ground. And so living out our Christian life is not easy, but it is rewarding. And it does take some work. And so Paul says to the Philippians, So that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit. It's kind of like back to your school days, you know. Where whether the teacher was in the room or not, you know, they would say, you know, whether I'm in here or not, I want you to behave like you know how to behave. Paul's writing this from prison. There may be a possibility he could visit Philippians. There's probably not a possibility, but he's saying whether I'm there watching you and you're on your best behavior or whether I'm far away writing you a letter and you may let your guard down a little bit. You need to live your life in a way that you're standing firm. You're holding your ground. You're sticking to your faith. You're sticking to your duty. You're persevering. You're remaining steadfast in what you're going to do. And that you refuse, refuse, refuse to give up ground in the battle. That you stand firm. Not in our own power. Because we're all pushovers. If we try to stand on our own, it's not going to be long before the world just knocks us down, the devil knocks us upside the head, or we fall on our own. But rather, stand firm in the Lord's power by His Spirit. It's all through the New Testament. Stand firm, stand firm, stand firm in your faith, stand firm in the truth of God's grace, stand firm in the Lord and in His mighty power. So we don't let our feet step back and compromise. We don't try to slide out of the way to retreat in fear. We don't run away in defeat. But we remember what Psalm 121 verse 3 says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. And so if you are in Christ, Christ is in you, and you can stick to it. You can hold your ground. But Paul goes on and he says, I want you to do that, but I don't want you to do that by yourself, because we need to stick it out together. He goes on in that sentence, standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side. That each and every person must stand, but they don't stand alone. Think about linemen on a football team. You know, there's the center, there's the guards, and there's the tackles. Each one is important. Each one has a responsibility, depending on the play. Each one has a man that their job is to block. And they either have to push them so far out of the way that the running back can run past, or they have to keep them away from the quarterback until the quarterback throws the football. Each one has a job. Each one has a responsibility, but what's the goal to score a touchdown, right? To move the ball progressively down the field and to get to the end zone. And to do that, they have to learn to work together. So the second thing I want you to see is that we have to work together. You see, those football linemen are working to progressively move the team forward down the field until the point that they score a touchdown. And God's people work together side by side progressively to do the work of the Lord, to advance the gospel, to build help God to work with God to build his kingdom on earth until he returns. And so we strive side by side. It's not a bunch of single people standing out there, standing all alone, but it's people working side by side, locked arms, locked hearts together. That word for striving is the same word we get athlete from. And they add a a prefix on there that means together. It's S-U-N, it's soon. So it means to work together or to compete in a contest together, to cooperate with one another, to work in perfect precision and coordination against a common opponent. It's the beautiful picture of independent parts coming together to achieve a task. And what draws them together, we looked at it several weeks ago, it's the Holy Spirit. It's God's spirit in us that unites us and tunes our heart to his heart and gives us a common position and a common purpose. Continue on with the football references. You may you may have, you may may recognize the name Herm Edwards. He was coach of the Cincinnati Bengals, does some television work, and, and he said famously to his players, the players that are on my team will play for the name on the side of the helmet and not the name on the back of their jersey. You see, Christian brothers and sisters are, are working together, not for their own name, not for their own benefit, not for their own fame, but they're working for the name that's above Every name. They're working for the Lord Jesus. And so we're on His team and we follow His lead. Sticking together. So the third thing I want you to see is that we have to keep our focus. So we're, we're working together. We're standing firm and we keep our focus. It's a phrase at the end of that sentence for the faith of the gospel. Remember, Last week, we, or a few weeks ago, we talked about devotion. And we remember that devotion to Christ affects the life of the church and the community around it. And so the reason, the devotion that we have, the motivation, the focus, is this good news that God proclaims. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that brings freedom from the power of sin and brings salvation to all who believe. Now, when you see the phrase, the faith, in the New Testament... It sets it apart from just faith. Because when they add the, T-H-E adds a definite article, it's talking about the teachings about Jesus, the teachings about salvation, Old Testament, New Testament, and the apostles. And so when it talks about contending for the faith, it's standing up for what has been passed along from generation to generation, from faithful man to faithful man all down the years. And it's the, the faith that comes from the truth of the good news about Jesus. It's the faithful teaching of the life of of Jesus and his teachings. It's really the story of his death, his burial and his resurrection and how God uses that in the plan of redemption to take something that was broken long ago and to put it back together to make all things new. It's the very heart of the Christian life and it's something that you never graduate from. It's never something that you grow out of. It's something that you never move beyond. It's something that you never say you don't need. That we cling daily, moment by moment to the truth of the gospel that God is, has transformed us and is transforming us more and more to look like Jesus. And so the focus of our life is on this truth that we, we learn it and we live it out. Personally, I have to do that. I have to continue to remember that and to live it out. And I have to be responsible to faithfully teach it and to faithfully share it with the people around me. For, for our church, it means that we, we study this truth, this faith in discipleship, and we share that faith in evangelism. Let me just share you, with you a quote from a man named Mark Ashton, and I, I've inserted our church name to personalize it a little bit. And it says, focus at cross Timber will mean ignoring many of the things that the world expects us to do. Things that earn honor in the world's eyes in order to channel our resources in the often less glamorous tasks God calls us to do. You see, this is our focus in this serious struggle of life. We work to advance the gospel side by side, working, contending, laboring together. It's not an option. It's my call. It's your call. It's our call. It's our mission. And as J.B. Phillips says in his translation, don't be scared out of your determination to live out your heavenly citizenship by anything your enemies might try to do to you. A determination to live out our heavenly citizenship without fear. You see, the fourth thing we need to see is that we can't be afraid. Don't be afraid. When it comes to living our lives out for Jesus, we, we deal with fear, and that's the reality. We fear what will happen to us, what will people think about us, and, and then also, what will, what, what's God going to ask me to do? Is God going to ask me to, to give up something? Is God going to ask me to do something or say something or go somewhere that I may not be comfortable going or to do something that I don't think I can do? And so we deal with a lot of fears. That's so why all through the Bible, the call for those that are called by God is to not be afraid. Rather, to have faith. Paul, writing to Timothy, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Jesus speaking in Matthew chapter 10, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Paul, writing to the Philippians, says, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. To not be frightened, to not be startled, or not be spooked like a horse. I was looking at an article online about horses, and it was entitled, Horses that Spook or Shy. And that the spook reflex in a horse is a natural reaction to help them avoid danger which is really great for a horse that is out there and they may be getting away from a rattlesnake, which can be disastrous for someone that is sitting on the back of a horse for a gentle ride and then all of a sudden something startles the horse. And in the article, the person that wrote it, a a horse expert said, some horses are more insecure than others and if they don't respect the handler or rider as a leader, they won't trust them to keep them away from unsafe situations. I read that last night. And when I read it, I started thinking, that's, that's me. That's me. That's why I, I fear. It's, it's a lack of, of trust in, in the Savior. It's a lack of understanding that what He has is best for me. It's a lack of understanding that He knows the path that I need to be on, the things I need to do, and the things I don't need to be do. And it's His job to protect me. And if I follow His lead as I listen to His commands, and I follow the gentle leading of Him as He holds the reins of my life, that He will guide me and that He will protect me. But not trusting Him to keep me away from unsafe situations. I think that's what holds a lot of us back. We think, no God, that's not really what you want me to do. I can't do that. And so coming out of that, I just wrote down in my, in my journal, you know, the prayer of Mark chapter nine, you know, Lord, I believe help my unbelief. And that as my faith in Jesus grows, that fear will be further pushed away from me. Because when we believe, when we trust that, that in Christ, we have everything we need, he is sufficient. Then what we'll do is we'll stick to it. We'll work together and we'll keep our focus and we'll operate without fear. Now, this fear has an, this standing not in fear has an amazing testimony to it. He says in the text, it's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. So how we respond when we face opposition matters. It's a testimony. It's like a, a giant sign with big letters for everybody to see that when a Christian stands firm and Christians stand together for Jesus in his name in the face of hate, in the face of opposition, or the face of conflict. You know what happens? It, it speaks a message. It speaks to both the opponents and it speaks to other believers, to the opponents, to non-believers, those that scoff, and even the devil himself. It is an evidence of their destruction. It points to what is coming. It's a point, it's a sign of their judgment. And for the believer, both the ones that are standing firm and the ones that witness that, it says in the text, but of your salvation and that from God. The message summarizes it nicely. Your courage and your unity will show them what they're up against. Defeat for them, victory for you, and both from God. So we've got to stand Firm. We've got to stand together. We've got to keep our focus. We cannot fear. But there's one last thing we have to embrace the privilege of suffering. Now, many of you were here a few weeks ago to hear um, my dear brother Leonard Jones talk about the truth that he was comforted by the Lord to be a comfort. To others, and in the midst of a situation that is not of his choosing, a physical ailment that has relegated him to a, a wheelchair, that he's still finding his purpose and his his meaning in life, and he's not being discouraged in that, but he's looking at it as God using him to be able to minister in a different way. It's suffering, and when I say that word. You know, I know probably a lot of you are just kind of backpedaling, saying, wait a minute, suffering. Because it's not a word we, we like to hear. It's not a word we even like to think about because it's, it's undesirable. Some people think it's punishment. Well, here only suffering because God's punishing you. But, we, but that's not always the case. But we do know it's not fun. <laughs> we don't like to endure it. And given the choice, we just want it to end. When will it end? And we look Many times for a way out of it more than the way through it that God wants to show us. And even though it's not pleasurable, it doesn't feel good. It is profitable. It is for our benefit. And so what we need to know about this is the first thing is that faith and suffering are both gifts from God. Don't take my word for it. Read the verse 29. For it has been granted, given to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. And so in this verse, and through Scripture, you find that there is an unbreakable bond between faith and suffering. That they are united. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And he says, for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now here that I still have. So a Christian that suffers for the sake of Christ... Gains a close fellowship with him. Further identifies with him. It's a a gift. Belief and suffering both are are gifts. And it works in us to strengthen our, our faith. Paul said, you know, that this outer man is wasting away, but the inner man is being built up day by day. And again, I read the verse that I read earlier, Philippians 3, 10, 11, his goal, my goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection. But he doesn't stop there. And the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed, molded, made, pressed into the image that He. It's formed in through his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from the dead. See, we will suffer. We'll suffer in different ways. We'll suffer emotional pain. We'll suffer physical pain. We'll suffer ridicule. We'll suffer persecution. We'll suffer not knowing all the answers that we think we should know. But it's a fellowship, it's a close relationship, it's a partnership with the Lord Jesus. We fellowship and relationship with him and fellowship with him, but we don't fellowship alone amongst ourselves. See, Paul encourages these Philippian Christians when he says, you know, you're in the same conflict (laughs) that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Remember, Paul's not writing this from a retirement home. Paul's writing this from prison, a Roman prison. So he is not, you know, sitting back, Under an umbrella, you know, with his feet propped up, reading a book and reflecting back on the good old days. No, Paul is still actively engaged in the battle of the faith because every time a Roman soldier was chained to him or unchained to him, came in or came out, Paul was actively pursuing his calling to live out the gospel. He's sharing the good news with them... ...and those guys are getting sent out all over the world. And so from prison he writes this letter... ...and he says, you know, I've endured suffering. In fact, I'm still suffering. And in that suffering I've received comfort. I've received grace that sustains me from the Lord Jesus Christ. And because I endured it, I know you can and you will. If any man on the face of the earth knew what it meant to suffer, Paul knew what it meant to suffer apart from Christ. I couldn't think of anybody else that, that we have the record of just the endurance he had through suffering. So I want you to just listen to his words because I'm by no means an expert in suffering. Just a few verses and we're about done. 2 Corinthians 1.5, he says, For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. To the Romans... Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 17. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And so suffering is as much a part of the Christ, of the Christian life as our faith. Enduring it is, is, is part of what it means to when we stand firm, we're enduring suffering. When we stand side by side, we're enduring suffering. When we don't give up when we're not afraid, we're enduring suffering. And as Eugene Peterson says in the message, the suffering is as much a gift as the trusting. So let's wrap this up. I said in the beginning, our goal is to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. How do we do that? Those five things. We stick to it. We cling to Jesus. We stand firm in His mighty power and not our own. We work together, side by side, fighting the fight like one man. We keep our focus. We hold to the timeless truth of the gospel. It's not just information that we need to know, but it's internal transformation in our lives. We're not afraid. Psalm 118, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear because what can man do to me? And then we embrace the privilege of suffering that I may know him, the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Let me close with a poem and then we'll pray. You're writing a gospel, a chapter each day by the deeds that you do, by the words that you say. Men, read what you write whether faithful or true. So what is the gospel according to you? May we pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your love. We thank you that your grace abounds to us. We thank you that though we are needy, you are worthy. And God, we thank you that while you call us to live a life worthy of the gospel, you never intend us to try to do that on our own. That it's only through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that we can do these things. And so, Lord, we thank You for Your presence in our lives. We thank You for salvation. And we thank You this morning. If someone is hearing these words and they're beginning to think, God, I could never do this. God, I don't even understand it. As you're working in hearts, that you, could, you are working to help them to know that it's not in their strength, but it's in yours simple, trusting faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we ask you to speak to us. God, we ask you, we trust that you have spoken to us and we ask as you do speak, that we would hear and we would respond. We pray that.